0: What's up? This is Peter Johnston tuning in from Southern California. Hope you're well wherever you are. Right now, you're listening to The Platform, which is a podcast dedicated to elevating interesting and diverse voices from all over the country. As we all know, 2020 has been a crazy year, what with murder hornets, UFOs, almost World War III, and definitely the pandemic. But the latest turn of events has revolved around race and racism in our country. We saw George Floyd get horribly murdered, And we are all still trying to reckon with what that means for us in our individual communities. For that reason, I wanted to talk to somebody whose own life experience could shed perhaps a little more light on this. His name's Ed. And Ed is a former Marine, a yoga teacher, a music therapist, and a black man living in America. And if you're interested in hearing a story about how one of Chicago's own came to practice yoga in the jungles of Costa Rica, then you should stick around and listen to the rest of this episode of The Platform. All right, Ed, I've got the recording rolling. So how about you go ahead and introduce yourself for us?
1: Okay. Um, so I'm Ed York. I am uh, I'm a fitness instructor, uh, former Marine, and, um, yeah, I've been in the fitness world since graduating from CSUN in 2019, so a year ago. I uh, studied music, and now I'm just, uh, in addition to fitness, I do um, aerial circus and um and music on the side
0: aerial circus what does that mean
1: <laughs> um that means that i um i like to do trapeze and aerial straps so anything involves me like swinging from things in the air i i want to try it out
0: holy crap that's <laughs> terrifying but it sounds really cool uh, it's so exciting yeah really um really
1: hard but exciting though what's that I said it, it can be hard, but it's exciting though. It's fun, just something to, like to work on, like give myself little uh, fitness goals. Since I'm constantly working out with other people, it's nice to give myself something too.
0: Right. So, were you born in the San Fernando Valley? Like, are you from around yeah. Northridge?
1: No, no. I was um, I was born in Chicago. Um, I lived there until I was ten, and then um, through a series of events, I ended up living in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, with my dad. And um, that's where I went to, uh, that's where I graduated from high school before going to the University of Mississippi for four years and then making my way to the Marines and ended up here.
0: Wow. So that's, that's the nutshell of your life. <laughs> that's the summary right there. That's all we need to know. Right. Stop the podcast right there. No. <laughs>
1: it's like, you know, it's like, okay, that's enough.
0: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so, so you grew up in Chicago a little bit. Tell, tell us about that. Um, what was it like out there?
1: Um, So, I was born there and I stayed there until I was 10, so I was definitely, I I was younger and there's a lot of things about the city that I didn't notice or realize until later in my life going back. Um, But, I mean, growing up there, I was, Chicago is very segregated, like every race has their own area, every class within those races has their own areas with very few integrated areas um, or communities um, within the city. So I grew up in an all black neighborhood with two white people that I recall seeing at any point. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, the, uh, it was, it was real interesting. Lots of drugs, lots of um, like my family, there were a lot of drug addicts, including my parents. And so I, um, I faced a lot of the adversity that comes along with being a dependent to someone who's dependent on the substance. Um, so I spent a lot of time living um, with my grandmother and, um, I think she is the reason why I actually had the opportunity to get out and try a lot of the things that I do because she made sure that, um, that the state didn't come and take me and have to live with, a, be a statistic living with another family in foster care.
0: Wow. Did you have a lot of siblings?
1: Yeah. Um, my mom has, uh, uh I think she has six other boys, um, Two, the only two that have the same father are the, uh, are the twins, um, and then the, the oldest one is still six years younger than I am, so they're, uh, they're all over the place. Uh, different family members have um, have adopted some of the brothers. Um, so yeah, it's been a, a very interesting journey with, uh, with all of them. And then my dad has, uh, he finally got his life together, got married, and he has a couple kids, so yeah, we have like eight brothers total.
0: <laughs> Big family.
1: Oh yeah. All over
0: the <laughs> United States. That's pretty cool. And, oh yeah and so you said you moved from chicago to um where where was it again
1: memphis memphis Elvis and and Blue, uh, blues and bill street
0: oh shoot did you get into the <laughs> music scene out there
1: i did i um i think like i wanted to start taking piano lessons when i was um, still living in chicago but when i got to um memphis didn't have opportunity until i got to school and then they said hey do you want to take a language or do you want to do music i'm like hands down Give me a saxophone, let me play.
0: Oh wow!
1: Yeah, so it was uh, it was great having the um, having such a a, a well known music scene there, and I went to a creative and performing arts high school, so uh, we had a lot of connections with um, the Stax um, American Music um, Museum and all the projects they had. I was playing with the VH1 um, Save the Music Foundation program. Um, played at the Orpheum, and so yeah, I got a lot of experience in, um, in high school, and that really set me up to be successful um, music-wise in college.
0: And so in college, did you study, did you use, play the saxophone, or how did you take the music with you?
1: Um, when I got there, I was majoring in mechanical engineering, and I was playing saxophone in, uh, in marching band. I was playing, not marching band, I was playing saxophone in jazz band, I was playing bassoon in orchestra and the concert band. And then I was playing percussion for drum line during marching band.
0: Oh my gosh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so it was, it was exciting. I was just, I was one of those people. I'm like, Hey, I want to, it's like this even now to a certain extent, I'm like, if I want to do something, I want to try it all out. So it's like, Hey, give me that. Give me that. So it's, it's awesome now because I was actually able to help people um, prepare for auditions on instruments that I didn't play.
0: And how would you go about that?
1: Musicality, um, when one just being able to express to somebody like, hey, it's not just notes on the page. You're thinking about like, you have something to say, and if you think if you approach it that way, then people will actually be engaged in the music. But if you think about just playing notes, then it gets boring for both the listener and the player. Um, and then the other part of it was when I'm sitting down in the orchestra or whatever rehearsal, I'll just listen to what um to the different hues and try to figure out why they um, they were extracting that way and. Just kind of help me out.
0: That's so cool. So, do you still play the saxophone, and maybe Um, the bassoon? I
1: haven't haven't played sax in a while, just because I didn't have one. But my um, my post deployment gift to myself was a ten thousand dollar bassoon. So I'm just like, you know what? That'll be enough. I'll just use my bassoon for now, and then I'll pick up sax later. And it just hadn't happened yet.
0: A nifty little ten thousand dollars, just a little. Yeah, I'm just like,
1: you know, what else do I do with this, right? <laughs> <laughs> the good thing is that they retain value pretty well, so at least I can consider it an investment.
0: So what's really interesting to me, Ed, is that um, from the story that's starting to kind of, I'm starting to piece together. You grew up in Chicago. You came from a family that was kind of struggling and was somewhat all over the place, but you were able to kind of find yourself through music and the next step of the story that's kind of interesting and seems almost out of place to me is the Marines. Uh, tell yeah. us about how that happened.
1: <laughs> um, so because I was a mechanical engineer major, but I really wanted to study music, I didn't think that my family was gonna support me. Uh, even though I was taking care of myself financially, I didn't think I was gonna have the support, which later I found out I should have just mentioned it because uh, my dad says he it's he was expecting it. Um, But yeah, uh, so four years in, I'm not making any progress because I'm in two programs that are generally five-year programs on their own and zero interrelatedness. Um, So I decided, you know what, I need to take a step back, figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And I always said that um, I wouldn't mind going into the military. I have uh, have uncles and distant family members that were in the Navy. And decided, you know what, let me go into the Marines. And I went there and talked to them. And they said, "Um, we're about to go work out, come back another day. I was like, wait, what? You mean just come back another day? So I, I went back and I talked to them. They're like, hey, do you want to do audition for the band? It's like, no, I'm already good at music. I can keep doing that. What else do you have to offer? So I took the test and they said, we recommend the, um, the language program. I've always sucked at learning languages, um, probably just because I didn't have the um, anyone to sit down with me and give me the techniques that I needed. Right. And so I decided, you know, I'm going to go to join the Marines and improve myself in those areas that I'm the weakest in, which were um, language and physical fitness. So By the time that was all over, I was instructing Arabic um, after uh, by the end of my nine years. I was instructing the Arabic, and I was also in charge of anywhere between four and 84 people. So I was able to um, not only get myself in better um, physical shape, I was also able to identify what people needed and figure out how to approach that um, from a group standpoint as well as individually.
0: Do you think that some elements of your background... kind of like going back to the musicality and you helping people with different instruments. Uh, Do you think some stuff from that helped you in the Marines?
1: Oh, yeah. I think um, I'm a firm believer in that, like, regardless of what the situation is, um, whether we perceive it as positive or negative, there's always something that we can learn from it. There's always something that we can take, whether it's something that we want to replicate or something that we want to avoid. Um, And so, like, even as far back as growing up with my grandmother, and she was... Uh, Fairly limited in what she could do physically. So I had to learn empathy um, and be able to, and self sufficiency um, by living with her. And then that transfers into the music and being able to really tune into the other people in your environment because you, you can't be an individual in a group. You have to be able to meld your sound, meld your ideas into that group. And that transferred directly into the Marines, being able to work efficiently in both small size teams and large elements.
0: Did you see active combat out there?
1: No, um, I was supposed to be on a um, on a four person team. on a, a two person team to go and support a team in uh, in Afghanistan. Um, that didn't happen because of a bunch of stuff. But I did end up in the southern Philippines on a little island, and I was attached to uh, some special operations unit, um, both American and Philippine. And so it was interesting. So we were supporting them um, in their combat role but we were slightly removed so the only um the only combat that were the closest we got to it was having cannons shot um, fired over our head or sitting there eating dinner and, and you just see a, an attack helicopter zoom through to go and like pick up some people that are working with you um so yeah and wasn't direct but we definitely uh we felt the impact of it dealing out uh, working with those guys on a daily basis and then the next day you're like hey where is he uh he's dead
0: no way
1: yeah so and that's that's the reality. It got me. Um, it made me realize even more so than uh, than before that um, death is going to happen regardless. So why focus on the on death when I could um, on the other end appreciate what I'm doing in life? And if it's going to happen anyway, why uh, anticipate it? Just enjoy what you're doing.
0: Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Dang, life lessons right there. Oh yeah. So right now you're standing outside a building called Row House. Yeah. Tell tell so, us about that. What's going on with that?
1: So um I I um every since I got out of the Marines I decided you know what I'm gonna go and travel every summer and then I got back from Colombia uh, last year, um, not Colombia last year was Costa Rica so I was up in the mountains in the jungle teaching yoga and it's like what do I do for money when I get back and uh, as soon as I got back I. Reached out to um, to the general manager here. He's like, "Yeah, we're just about to open," and we um, like we talked, and I love it. It's really, it's kind of like a um, like a spin class, and that you have got the music, but you've got people rowing in sequence and whatnot. So I get to be ecstatic and happy and loud and shout, and get to use that musicality um, just by like using it as cues. Um, yeah, which is awesome because I also teach yoga, so there's the other end of that. So I get a little bit of both of this.
0: And so when did you start teaching yoga? Was that because you just said you kind of slipped this in there like I wasn't going <laughs> to notice. But oh, I was just teaching yoga in the jungle. Like oh. <laughs> so. So when did you start teaching yoga?
1: Um, let's see. I, I had been practicing um, pretty regularly in the Marines. So when I got out, it was my to myself. So in um, November of 2016, I took a, um, I spent a month in India um, doing my yoga teacher training and then came back, went up to Monterey, got all my stuff and moved straight down to uh, to the valley. I didn't know anybody. I just, I knew I wanted to go to CSUN because of their music therapy program. And um, so I was like, well, I have this yoga. I have my personal training certification. Why not go and teach it? And that's what, I think that's what allowed me to stay here uh, longer is not just the financial aspect of it, but because you can actually get in and work with people and you start to see people for, um, less I and mean, more than just this superficial like mm, stigma that young know, that you that might be associated with uh, with la you start to actually talk to people like oh okay open my mind a lot more because at first i was like i will never move to la why would i do that to myself <laughs> and then i moved here i was like oh it's just like every place else where there's like the pros and cons so yeah
0: yeah so i mean i just gotta say that's pretty freaking adventurous like you're, you're traveling all over like i just can't imagine that like traveling every summer to some new country you know teaching Mm -hmm. yoga in the jungles and then just kind of moving to a place almost on a whim just to try something new it seems like you're you're really focused on trying new things in your life
1: yeah and i is i think a big part of it is growing up and seeing my immediate family stuck in the rut of i'm not necessarily a rut but they're doing the same thing that their parents did with slight variations and it's like, you know what, there's so much more out there and that's why um like that's I I have yoga, so now I just use it as an opportunity to go out and travel in addition to working with people here. Um I was actually supposed to be in Mallorca, Spain, right now before everything happened with uh, with the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. But in the aerial circus it is just a matter of I don't know if I don't like it until I try it. Yeah.
0: So let's make this final jump here. So you you talked about how you found yoga. Um, and now you said you wanted to go to CSUN because you wanted to do sound healing, sound healing. Tell, tell us a bit about that. What is that? And why, why are you into it?
1: Um, when I got out, when I got out of the Marines, I had to ask myself, like, am I going to get out one? Because I could have done 11 more years and gotten a paycheck for the rest of my life. And, um, so when I decided that I was going to, I said, one, if I do this, it needs to be something completely different than what I'm doing now. Otherwise I may as well stay in the place that I am. Um, so I started taking the, uh, those online um, job compatibility tests, and three out of the four of them um, had enlisted as number one, music therapy. I was like, what? what is music therapy? And I had to look into it to figure it out. And it's like, man, this is perfect. You take my passion for music and combine that with my other passion of trying to be able to help other people in some way, shape, or form. I and mean, the program is essentially half music, half psychology. Um, and that's what I loved about it, being able to better understand, like, how people think and um, and then figure out how to use music to help them achieve goals, whether it be a, uh, an infant in the NICU, all the way up to someone who's just had a stroke and trying to learn how to rewalk. It has so many different applications. So what I did was um, I did the first, pro- um, the first year, which I got all of my research out of the way. I did... Uh, um, I did all my field work working with children with developmental uh, needs um, working with the elderly working with all kinds of people in just that like those two semesters um, so I decided you know what I don't see myself sitting down in the office so I want to try to figure out how to impl- like incorporate some of the other stuff that I'm into like fitness and things um, so one of the last project that I did was working with a group of uh, of kids from a gang reduction intervention program out in Boyle Heights. And I loved it. And because that was a moment that I realized that a lot of these things that I want to be a part of um, or have been a part of, usually what you see are everyone looks the same. Everyone is white um, and middle to upper middle class. And it's like, well, this is the first opportunity where I've worked with um, small, um, brown and black children in, uh, in this capacity. So that kind of sparked the next, uh, the next step, which is the one that I'm working on. And that's trying to figure out how to incorporate, um, mindfulness through music, um, uh, movement, music, and meditation, and not only, um, put it in a place where people that can afford it can have access to it, but also figure out how to take it back into those other communities, because there is nothing like having somebody who has shared experiences, right. um, to tell you like these are some things that I uh, that I recommend trying out or these are some things that I did to help get over that um, I know I mean it's kind of jumping around a little bit but when I was in the Marines the place that you would think like it's all about camaraderie and it is but to kind of put some perspective on it I'm still a black man and there's so few black people in my field because you have to have the highest scores and the people who did have them would say why did I do that why don't I just do like an admin job um, but somebody that uh, that worked for me, somebody that I considered a friend, um, one day came up to me, walked into my office and said something like overtly racist. And then it's like, what? And wow. that trend kind of continued. And I was like, what, are you, what is this? And so I didn't contribute. Like, I still respected him for other things, but I was, I was kind of confused. Well, sure enough, then this was um, 2011. Mm-hmm. Three days ago, I got a Facebook message with everything that's going on with Black Lives Matter movement, with this um, with this renaissance of uh, this reawakening that everyone is having, or not even reawakening, this awakening that so many people are having, realizing right. that things that they say and do, sometimes they don't intend for the to come across <laughs> uh, um, they don't intend for it to happen, or they don't intend for it to come, uh, come across a certain way, but he realized that and he was like, dude, I'm sorry that it took me this many years to realize how wrong I was for saying what I said to you. And again, this was three days ago in the middle of like of the current climate. So it's great to know that like people are starting to realize things now. Even though it did take um, that many years, I'd rather take three years than him never realize or not three years. I'd rather take um, nine years than never realize that what he said was out of place.
0: Wow. So you said something really interesting there, which is, it's not a reawakening; it's an awakening.
1: <laughs> right, exactly. Um,
0: so explain, elaborate a little bit on that. What What do you mean by that?
1: <laughs> um, so, in my opinion, if you if you take two people from completely uh, different parts of the country, let's say, and um, and you put them in a room together, or you like let them know about each other's uh, like you you we converse, you have no reason to. Uh, to expect that I'm going to know and understand what your perspective is, but you're probably going to think, well, why is he like, why is he uh, discounting my perspective or whatever? Um, let me make that a little bit clear. Two people from two different areas can't expect to have the exact same mindset about different things. Yeah. So if I go through certain struggles in my life, if I have certain experiences that you don't have, then how can you know to, um, that that's actually happening unless I say something? Um, what's happening now is that things are like, you have social media that are putting things out there to say, Hey, Hey, you cannot avoid this. These images are right here in your face. Like, yeah. Oh, no, it's a one-off. Like, no, actually this is something that's been going on forever. I remember being in Monterey. I got, um, I got handcuffed twice. Neither of those of was I wrong. One time I was keeping my roommate from, um, from running out into the street who was really drunk. Um, and going out to another bar, I said, nope, i decided to bring him back into the bar so I could call a cab. The yeah. police show up and put me in handcuffs, put him in handcuffs. Everyone inside the bar um, came outside and said, no, he's, pre- like, he's protecting his roommate. He's doing what he should be doing as a good Marine and making sure his buddy gets back home. Um, but they arrested me and uh, put nothing went on my record, but they put me um, they put me in a, uh, in a cell overnight saying that I was serving the peace.
0: No way. Uh, there was Who called them?
1: where somebody next door was having an issue. I lived in this awesome house like right on the bay, just chilling one night. Yeah. and uh, people next door were causing the ruckus. Well, the police came, and I was sitting out um, out on the side of the house, so apparently, When he's shown his flashlight, the black guy standing in between a bunch of houses in the affluent area doesn't really look right. So I got pulled up. Here it is, Monterey. It's like 40 something degrees. I'm wearing like a pair of shorts and no shirt. And they're like, hey, sit down on the porch. I'm like, can I get a sweatshirt? It's like, no. It's like, but it's cold. Like, I live here. I can show you my lease. My name is on the lease. My, but like, the money comes out of my checking account every week. I've done absolutely nothing wrong. I'm not even saying, forget you. All I'm saying is, can I put a sweatshirt on? And the officer said, no, if you ask me again, I'm going to put you in the back of the car. And
0: oh, like my later, I gosh.
1: Why, yep. And then I got handcuffed and put in the back of the car. They didn't take me in that time, but they made me wait there so that somebody who was um, who lived elsewhere or uh, actually until the, uh, the older lady upstairs came down and explained that it was coming from next door. That's when I was allowed to go and get a shirt. So I'm like, I had to be validated by an old white lady in order for the police officers to remote like to even consider believing that what i was saying was true so yeah that's that's intense uh, life
0: <laughs> and it's what you just said right there that's so intriguing to me it's like you can't hide from it anymore right mm-hmm. you can't just say oh well it's a few one-offs you know right but this is your lived experience and i'm sure mm-hmm. it wasn't just those two times or even that one guy in the marines but I'm assuming it was lots of things throughout all these experiences we've talked about.
1: And those are just the, um, those are just like some examples from um, when it comes to interactions with law enforcement, obviously it's not always been that way. I've had plenty of positive um, interactions with people in law enforcement, Um, especially um, once I joined the Marines, there's a, um, there's a, A relationship there because a lot of uh, former Marines go into uh, going to law enforcement. Yeah But it's also like the the things that you experience on a regular basis. It's those things i I was talking to one of my buddies from North Carolina He's one of my really good friends and you wouldn't think it because he he sounds like a good old boy He comes from money and then you have me from Chicago came from nothing and then we end up being really good friends but um, as we as we talk about it it's just like all the little things like what are the microaggressions what are those things that uh, happen on a daily basis that no one really thinks about and it's like yeah i didn't notice that or i didn't think anything about it like yeah because it happened one time to you but when you when it happens on a regular basis when you walk into the store and that uh the stereotype of like this like a store employee following you Yeah, no, it actually happens. If I walk from one aisle to the next, just looking for something and going back and forth, I'm like, okay, well, I can see you might think I'm suspicious, but why am I the only one that's being followed? followed (laughs) Something's not adding up here. (laughs) here Yeah. Yeah. So yeah.
0: Oh my gosh. So um, obviously, there's all these protests, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. The whole country's in an uproar. And uh, a bunch of my friends, even out in Utah, are marching right now. And Utah is one percent black, yep. so I think that's pretty incredible, you know. And places like Montana and Wyoming and Idaho that are majority white are starting to realize this too. Yeah. Um, let's say you were dictator for a day, okay? <laughs> let's say you kick Trump out, you're in the White House, you got free reign. So what does Ed York do to um, to start? moving the ball in the right direction. What, what are some things that could be changed right now that you think would be really helpful?
1: Um, part of it, you've already started, we've already seen it start, or at least i um, here in LA. Um, with well, when Mayor Garcetti announced it, I think earlier this week or last week where it's, the idea of defunding police does not mean you completely dismantle the police force. What it means is that you start to think about where you allocate your money. It's a, it's a simple matter of economics. You have a finite amount of resources, and then you have to figure out where do I want to put those resources. So what's happening now and what I would also do is, all right, well, we cut back slightly on that. Yes, they're going to have to um, figure out how to operate within a, small, within a smaller budget, but everyone else is having to do the same thing right now because of coronavirus anyway. Right. Um, and then the money that's left over, you start to figure out where those communities are that need the, uh, the assistance. I'm not talking um, necessarily reparations. I'm not te- I'm talking necessarily um, something along the lines of the stimulus check where everybody just gets a blanket check. What I'm saying is um, invest in those communities, invest in the programs that are gonna get people out of the street and having them do something productive, giving, um, giving children or adolescents an opportunity to not only learn but also get them um, let them know how what they're learning can benefit them whether it be financially or um or educationally yeah whatever it is we have to give people a sense of purpose if people feel hopeless then the situation is going to feel hopeless um and so that's just on how do we build up the communities like you put money into it with and supervise the money we can't do what we did in Haiti where we dump money there and then all of a sudden the people that are in power take all the money and the people who need it don't see it anymore.
0: <laughs> dump the money but and the leave.
1: <laughs> right, exactly. We do. The United States is really good about that. It's like, I'm going to feel good about myself. Here, have a bag of cash. And then we don't <laughs> do it follow-up. Like, well, of course. <laughs> What's going to happen then? The money's going to just disappear. Oh, yeah, that, right. was, that was great. Uh, let us know when next time you want to do that.
0: <laughs> I saw an Instagram um, then- post that was like... Um someone had asked, "Oh, well, what would what would this defund the police movement look like if it were implemented?" And then someone responded something I thought was so good, which was, "We already know it it would look like a suburb." It mm-hmm. would look like a suburb. There like the, it, there's not less crime because there's more police, there's less crime because there's more resources right exactly and when kids commit crime or act out a little they don't immediately get thrown in the clink they just get the chance to have people like you like music therapists or whatever Mm -hmm. yeah
1: yeah I, uh, i had a friend um another yoga teacher posted something online um i think yesterday i was listening to it and she was saying that growing up they were saying that she had a learning disability um really it's and as we look into it more you realize it's not a disability it's more of having a different way of processing information and having to figure out how to um, how to effectively get you to um uh, to comprehend the information and apply it um so the example that she gave was there was also um, a young black man um, well yeah a black boy in the class and the difference between the two of them even though they started off at the same point um, they had really bad grades what happened as she, um, if she were ever to fall off track, like as you started to understand her learning style, she had people. She had her teachers would come up to her and ask her, like, "Hey, I know that you can do better." Her parents, like, "Hey, I know that you can do better. What can we do for you for this?" And on the other side of that, her um, the uh, the black kid didn't have that. He didn't have people at home because, unfortunately, he was another statistic where he grew up in a um, in a single parent home. The father wasn't present. The mother was there. Um, and she had to work more than she like could. Uh, she had to work multiple jobs, so she did. He didn't have the support that he needed. So while her grades were going up over the course of her high school career, his were going down, and he just stopped caring because he felt hopeless. He said, "I didn't know how to do this on my own." And yet she had somebody on there. And so just like you said, it's a matter of resources, like putting it in there and letting people know, yes, one, I care. Two, I care enough to actually sit there and figure out how to get through to you. And I will not give up on you until you do. And that's what everybody needs is somebody's just there saying, I'm not going to give up on you. Like, this is going to happen.
0: That's so cool. And, you know, Black Lives Matter is the minimum. Right. <laughs> it's <Exactly>. like, <laughs> and then the <laughs> whole response of all lives matter. It's like, well, it does. It, that's obviously not true right now. Cause of the disparity and the disparities you've already been talking about. Mm-hmm. And so that's so cool. And, um, kind of bringing this full circle back to you as an individual within this, this group of people that's been historically oppressed. Um, you've done a great job of, Making a life for yourself in the midst of this, and what are your plans for the future?
1: Um, my biggest plan and my goal right now, and it's still uh, kind of furry or kind of fuzzy because I had a plan, and obviously with everything going down over the past three months, um, I've, it's faced a little kink. But I, I do want to figure out how this, um, this program of mindfulness through movement, music, and edu- um, and meditation, um. The idea is once again to not only like build something that can grow in a neighborhood that can afford it, but use it as a jumping off point. Build up personal capital, build up the capital in my business, and then take that and while at the same time working to create these um, community outreach programs. I've already um, been asked to do yoga with football teams. I've mentioned the. Uh, the gang reduction and prevention program that I worked with before. So ultimately I want to create an official relationship, um, between, um, my future business and, um, and these organizations that are actually out there giving, providing the support to people who need it.
0: Sign me up for one of those classes, dude. <laughs> That's awesome. Definitely. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else you want to say? Maybe, I don't know, like, advice for people who look like me you know
1: what i'd say is what i mentioned earlier about perspective i can't expect for the person on the other side of the street to know what i'm thinking to know what i'm going through unless we have a conversation um whether that be me coming up to you or you coming up to me the conversation has to be had examples just like this right now and that's part of why i was so excited to uh to do this was anytime we can share our stories with somebody else we start to um we share those experiences um i try to tell i i like telling stories so sometimes i get a little little long with it sorry about that
0: no Um, that's the whole point man (laughs) yeah keep going
1: but as we as we tell these stories we start to realize um we start to find the um the emotions behind the stories we start to find the motivation behind it so it's, it's not just hearing the words. It's understanding how that makes you feel as a person. And I, ultimately, we are communal animals. We're communal beings. So what I feel should impact you in some way, shape, or form, unless you just don't care. Oh, no, my phone's about to die.
0: Hey, it's all good. I think that's good enough for now. Anything else you well, want to say before you go?
1: No, I think that, um, I think that about does it. Sweet. Well, like I said, once again, thank you for, uh, thanks for inviting me and and asking.
0: For sure. Let me cut the recording right there. Something like two minutes passed before his phone died and the conversation was over. But I loved talking to Ed. I loved learning more about his perspective on systemic racism in this country. And I loved hearing his personal story of growing up, self-actualizing, and finding himself through yoga and music and even the Marines. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't be afraid to like it, subscribe, share with your buds. I would love to keep the conversation going with y'all at the Facebook link in my bio below. And hopefully y'all stay well and stay safe in quarantine. And I'll see you on next week's episode of The Platform.